Welcome back to The Poptimist. Today we have Grammy-winning engineer Jeff Thomas. Jeff, thank you for joining me. You're welcome. And Isaac Short, producing today's episode of The Weird Sisters. How's it going, everybody? So I was kind of doing some research before our episode today, and it seems you kind of have a bunch of different things you've worked on in your career. But what I was wondering was, what was your first job you've ever had? I assume you mean audio. No, no, just in general. Like, what was the first job you ever worked? Um, The very first job I ever worked was actually for a welding firm. Okay. And um, kind of a gopher. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'd go and pick up parts or do this, do that. He had me at one point uh, doing some landscaping around the place and, you know, just jobs like that. Um, He also owned uh, a few properties around the Phoenix area, and that's kind of where I grew up, uh, half grew up. Um, I was born in uh, Pennsylvania and uh, half grew up in Pennsylvania until I was about uh, 12 or 13. What part of Pennsylvania? Um, just a little town um, in between Erie and Pittsburgh called Titusville. Nobody's ever, ever Have heard of it. Have you heard of it, Isaac? I'm from a little town in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania. I don't, I don't know that one. Yeah. It's in between Erie and Pittsburgh, uh, a little closer to Erie. We used to get that lake effect snow. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the snow would get so high that my brother and I could dig tunnels in, in it and you know, during the wintertime and uh, mess around. But cold, cold, cold. That's my memories of, of Pennsylvania. Yeah. But uh, my parents moved us from there to uh, Phoenix. The total opposite. Yeah, total opposite. And what a, I mean, oh, my God. You know, I came from this little town of, of nothing to, you know, this big town. And uh, at least it was a big town to me yeah. at that time. And uh, holy crap, the culture shock. It was just, it was so different. How was it different? Well, I mean, just going from uh, a town where you knew a lot of your neighbors to, you know, just knowing nobody or, or in just the massive sprawl. I mean, Phoenix just covers so much area. It was just, it was incredible. Uh, well, everything out west, too, compared to the east coast, it's kind of on a grid. Like, all the cities were built right. with roads in mind when, of course, on the east coast, everything is, used to be a dirt road or a brick road, and then it got yeah. paved over. Yeah. So, it's uh, it's pretty crazy. But anyway, um, getting back to your original question, yeah, just kind of a gopher and, and what have you. And then, uh, you know, I just did the, the, you know, the normal thing that uh, kids do. I think my second job was Dairy Queen, for Christ's sake. Oh, yeah. And uh, after that, I I, uh, worked at this uh, grocery store. It was was kind of like uh, what Walmart is now. Uh Uh, It was called Smitty's. And uh, I did all kinds of different things there. You know, started off as just, you know, bagging groceries and... Um, just kind of took off a little bit from there. So one of the first jobs I had was working as a grocery at a grocery store as well. And in Maine, it's required by law that you have to recycle all your bottles and cans. So I was a bottle clerk for a little while too. So I, I had to like lift these 200 pound, like steel drums of broken glass and take them out back. And I will never forget the smell. 
Like it's so specific in my memory. It's just the smell of beer and wine, liquor, soda, mm. orange juice, all that smell mixed together. It's so it's so specific. It smells like a barroom floor, basically. Mm. Um, but yeah, I, I had fond memories of, of working in a grocery store. But what? Um, we're not just here to talk about uh, just normal jobs. Hmm. How did you get involved with becoming a recording engineer? Is that something you always knew you wanted to do? No. So in 77, and yes, I was alive in 77, um, my grandfather took me to go see Star Wars. And at that point, I was an electronics freak. Um, I wanted to know how everything worked. I tore stuff apart. My dad was so mad at me. He had this beautiful console stereo, 1970s. <laughs> and I tore all the guts out of that thing and couldn't put it back together. And he was so livid. Although he bought a quad system after that. But it was just, you know, I just, I had a thirst for electronics. You know, he, he got me all the, and he, you know, certain part of this rubbed off a little bit from him. I mean, he was, he was more mechanic than anything else, which that rubbed off. That, I, I myself worked on cars for a living after all the odd jobs and stuff like that. And uh, it, the, my dad was crazy when it came to mechanics. I mean, he worked on just about everything you could think of uh, other than airplanes. If it went across the road, he worked on it. You know, I, he, his father owned a Texaco station in the day. And um, so he worked on cars and did all that kind of stuff. And there for a while, he worked on locomotives, built locomotives at, in, at General Electric up in Erie. But he, you know, he would... He had a, a job there for a while where he would take wrecked semis and build one good semi out of a couple of wrecks. Oh, so he did like salvage jobs. Yeah, he did everything. So some of that just kind of rubbed off on me a little bit. But I got interested in electronics. And then it wasn't that much longer after that that I really started to notice music. I remember breaking into my, my, my dad, it's funny, it, it, my mom and dad were just two completely different people. My dad was an absolute hillbilly, uh, loved the old country music, you know, um, uh, you know Hank Williams Sr. And, and all that kind of, Tennessee Ernie Ford and stuff like that. And my mom was a rocker. And so, uh, for whatever reason, I gravitated towards Beatles. And uh, the, the first record I ever bought was um, actually the Beatles Blue record, which is a, a greatest, a, hits, a great, greatest hits. But it's the it's the later years, you know, kind of like the 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 I don't want to say drug years, but the, yeah, the drug years, the, drug you know, years, the, the, yeah, the, the fun it, years, the fun years. You know, my mom had the Red record, and she had a couple of other Beatles records, and I just kind of gravitated towards that. And, you know, I remember listening to rock stations and stuff like that. And I always loved that, you know, music and what it did to you. And, um, you know, later on, I just it was always this thing of, of listening to better quality, you know, the, the hi-fi systems and so on and so forth. So, you know, 
the combination of, of my interest in electronics and my interest in music just kind of went hand in hand. And um, I, it, when I decided to, to actually move on from working on cars and, and try and have a career in, in music, I went to school for it. This was early 91, 92. And I really didn't know what I wanted to do, whether I wanted to really be an engineer or whether I wanted to be a tech. Uh, I would have been happy either way. But as soon as I got into a studio and got a hold of a console, it was, it was done. What was your first experience of getting into a, a studio and getting in front of that console the first time? Well, I was really at the school. Okay. Um, I went to a, a school in Los Angeles. You know, when I did this, there was hardly any schools for, for doing this kind of stuff. And um, I think there was, you know, at that time, I think there was only like four or five in the country. SAE was around. There was, oh my God, there was another school in Los Angeles. I want to, it, it wasn't Musicians Institute, but it was called something along those lines. I can't remember it. Now it's been so many years. And then um, there was a school called Soundmaster in Los Angeles. And that was run by a gentleman, Brian Inglesby who was a uh, staff engineer at Warner Brothers for years and did a lot of work with them and what have you. And it was actually a working studio. During the day, they would, they would do sessions, and during the night, they would, they would actually do school. So as soon as I walked in and, and saw a, a real console, I was like, mm, I want to know how to do that. What kind of console was it? Um... You know, I'll remember it five minutes after I walked out. Quad eight. It was a quad eight. It took me for a second. Yeah, it was a quad eight. And, uh, you know, old vintage console, but it sounded great. And that's all it took. Uh, I still interested, you know, I still love to do the electronics thing. I mean, you've been at my studio. Yeah. I build a lot of stuff. And uh, I love doing that, although anymore I'm finding it hard to find the time to be able to do some of that stuff. When you, when you actually build something, it, it, it takes a lot of your time up. It's, it really is. It's, it, I mean, I, I enjoy it. There's all kinds of kits you can you know, get to, to, to build things. Um, I've got a Marshall JCM 800 that I built. You know, start off with a kit. There's, a, I think it's called Sierra Tone, has a, has a really, really nice basic kit for a lot of different amps. The quality of their boards are great. And, um, it's, and you can do the, the point-to-point, and, and it, it's great. I love it. And I built my first, actually, the first one I built was, oh, my God. Again, 10 minutes after I leave here, I'll remember the damn name of the company. They, they did a lot of kits during Metro Amps. Uh, those were really nice kits, too. Those, they were nice. Yeah. They, they've gotten out of the kits now. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, at least the last time I checked, they don't. I, um, I taught at a school for recording and engineering for a while. And we used to have these... AES sessions where we would build different things, microphones, and I did a guitar amp one, and we built a bunch of plexis 
50 watt Marshall Plexis um, from Metro uh, Metro Amps, and God damn, they sounded so good. They really did, and that so I that was the first guitar amp I did. And then after you build one, okay, it doesn't take that long. I can I could build a, a JCM in a weekend as long as I got all the parts. So you know, I I, I built that first one, and then I had a, a couple of friends that really liked the way it sounded. So we would do swaps. I said, okay, I'm going to build you this, but you're gonna you're gonna do this for me, and you know, we used to barter and do stuff like that. I love building. It's just, but it's so time consuming. You know, um, yesterday I uh, I bought this um, Epiphone Les Paul. It's uh, Black Beauty, and I just picked it up. It was I was at uh, Nashville used, and I just picked this thing up. And the first, I don't know about you guys. I'm sorry, you guys, guitar players. I'm a bass player. Okay, cool. So, I don't know about you guys, but the first thing I do when I pick up any guitar is I don't plug it in. I walk over to the quietest place I can find, and I just strum it and see what it sounds like acoustically. Feel the vibration, see what it sounds like. Honestly, anymore, I don't even give a crap what it sounds like plugged in. If it sounds good acoustically, the neck straight, everything's good, I can change the pickups. That's not a big deal. So I bought this thing because it just, I picked it up and it was just awesome. You could, you strummed it, you heard every note, it felt great, the neck was straight. So yesterday, or the day before yesterday, I I bought a bunch of pickups. I bought uh, a bunch of custom shop pickups from uh, Seymour Duncan. They Um, make nice stuff. They do, they really do. And the pickups I bought are unpotted. So um, I wanted something that was going to be authentic to the to the fifties, the late fifties kind of thing. Uh, I, I really kind of wanted this guitar. I mean, I've got modern sounding guitars, but there's something about just that the, the, those older Les Pauls that have such a great character to them. Oh yeah. So I pulled all the guts out of it. I I put in new pots and. Uh, new wiring and, and uh, you know, got Stu Mac to send me uh, some new, the new switches and everything. My God, it took me a whole day to do that. It's just like I wanted to work on a couple of other things, but I just didn't have the time. And you know, if I had more time, I would definitely. I just love building gear. I really do. You learn so much when you build something and. You know, you learn how it works even better and how you can modify it to do what you want to do. And I just enjoy the heck out of that. Something I noticed on your website is you have a couple custom 1176 compressors and LA2 rays. Yeah. Is that all stuff that you built or something? Yes. Yeah. The 1176 was actually a hairball kit. Yeah, I heard really good things about the hairballs. Yeah. It's a great kit. It is definitely not something i would recommend as your first build yeah it is a bear and i wanted to say something else if you get my gift um the la2a isn't bad and that was another one that we did at, at the school point to point and it's a brilliant design you, you gotta wonder about these things so uh, you, you know you gotta wonder about who thinks about 
these designs to begin with. I mean, you guys know anything about an LE 2A compressor? Well, it's, no. it's optical, right? So it's, uh, it's, 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 it's it's No, it's not. Well, it's, it's tube because at the time there was no solid state. Okay, so it's all vacuum tube, that's correct, but it uses a a light and a photo cell for the compression. So oh. it's it's incredible. It's an incredible design. So it, you think about it. Okay, so you have, and I wish I had a diagram, but you have this audio path that goes through it, and it's got a ton of gain. I've read a little bit about it, and from what I understand, the actual circuit was close to a mic preamp that uh, I think Bill Putnam was designing at the time. So you have this circuit that the audio goes through, right? Now, the audio goes two directions. If you take a look at the schematic, you can see that it goes through, you know, just linearly, right? But it also goes through this secondary circuit, okay? So the secondary circuit, <laughs> it goes to a different tube, now, most of the tubes that, that the uh, LA-2A use are all preamp tubes. Okay, you guys know preamp. Yeah, 12x7. 12x7, right. Yeah. Well, the audio also goes down to this other tube that is a power amp tube. In reality, it's like a 5-watt or 10-watt tube. It needs that power to power a light. Okay, so here's, here's the deal. Uh, you guys know that, that power takes the path of least resistance, right? Okay. So <laughs> there is a photocell. Uh, imagine that, that the, you got the audio going this way where this, this photocell is at that goes to ground, right? <laughs> okay. So the audio also goes through this, this other tube that lights the light bulb. Now, normally the photocell has a very high resistance until the light blinks. Now, the only way that the light is going to blink is if there is a large transient that the signal causes that light to blink, right? Yeah. So, okay. So the light blinks, the photocell drops its resistance, and now some of that audio goes to ground and doesn't get reproduced through the other chain. Okay, so that's why it has like a fixed attack. Yeah. Uh, a fixed attack, fixed release. So, uh, you know, the, the audio goes this, you know, uh, through the linear path, but it also goes to this other path. The light blinks on the peaks. Uh, the photocell drops resistance, and that peak, instead of being reproduced over here, is now bled off the ground. Yeah. Who thinks of this crap? Well, it's, I feel like so many of the the people who design stuff like this, you know, if you really think about the, the history of recording, recording's not that old. And, like, I know there's different people that have had, like, military experience or whatever. Yeah. They get out of the military, then all of a sudden they're like, well, I'm interested in doing music, yeah. and they start making gear. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you, uh, Tom Dowd, of course, is a perfect example. Uh, got out of the military, was, was one of the ones that helped... Uh, designed the, the first atomic uh, bombs and <laughs> comes into the music industry. Yeah, figure that one out. Pretty interesting. Well, I feel like the the, the music industry has the uh, the ability to attract all kinds of different, just all extremes of society. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's it's pretty crazy. So, what was the transition like going from analog tape to digital? I really feel um, 
don't want to use the word blessed, but I guess so, being able to have seen that um, and being able to take what I knew from analog and p applying it to the digital world. I was working on a project just recently, the other day really, uh, where I did a backwards reverb effect. And the artist that I was working with goes, I've never been able to get it to work quite as well as you did it. And I go, well, I kind of learned it from analog. Because if you want to get that backwards reverb, a ghostly kind of thing and really do it right, you got to kind of think about it like you used to do it on two-track tape. Or not two-track, 24-track. So, you know, if you want to do that right, the, the only way to do it is to reverse the vocal and print your reverb and then reverse them both back. So on two-inch tape, you used to take the two-inch tape, flip it upside down, okay, and I'll figure out that, you know, track 23 is now two, and vice versa. But whatever your vocal is, take that to a reverb, bring it back to a couple of empty tracks, don't wipe what you already have on tape, you know, bring that back and then reverse it again. And you know, your reverb is no longer after the vocal, it is before the vocal kind of thing. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I was really lucky to, to see that transition. It was kind of rough at the beginning. When did it start? Well, the very beginning of it started really when I started getting into the, into the industry. Well, I take that back. You can trace it all the way back to the, I mean, digital, I mean, in the, the 1980s. Billy Joel, he was the first one to kind of have a mass-released album. I think it was the Nylon Curtain, um, and I think he did that all digital, and that was kind of like the first digital album. It's the one with um, Allentown on it. I'm not too sure about that. I know that um, you know Rush did Moving Pictures. Okay. Um, that was recorded on a Mitsubishi 32-track tape machine. Yes, 90120, whatever. I think of that record. You know, Owner of a Lonely Heart. That was yeah, all yeah. done on digital. But you know, it, so digital had been around, but it really started to change in the late '90s. Is that when people started switching to ADAT? Well, ADATs had started uh, the school uh, the school that I went to in 92, 93. Actually, they were all proud because they they were the first school that had ADATs. But um, that's kind of where it started. ADATs really kind of started it all. Kind of a terrible machine, though. You really had to make safeties. Because, you know, it, it was basically a VHS transport. And, you know, well, maybe you guys aren't old enough to remember VHS, but... They I'm would, old enough to remember VHS. Okay, they, they would chew up tapes like crazy. So you would get done with a take, and if it was a good take, you stopped the session and you made a safety. Otherwise, you were going to be in trouble because it would chew up tapes. Tascam came out with the uh, D88 not too far after that. And they quite, I mean, it's still uh, V, it's not VHS, it was, uh, it was super, yeah. yeah. And, uh, but they built a better mousetrap. It did not chew up tapes quite as often as, um, matter of fact, I cannot remember ever chewing up a, a tape coming out of a D88. But I sure do want ADAT. 
So that transition started slowly at the beginning of the 90s. I mean, again, I'm pretty lucky in when I got into the industry. I mean, when I got in, record budgets were still pretty, pretty big. Um, I started at a studio called The Village Recorder, and I walked in at an incredible time. I mean, the Eagles had just started Hell Freezes Over, and they had carte blanche I mean those guys that was the reunion of those those, I remember there was one day now I barely did anything on other I took notes I set up microphones I was just lucky to be in the room yeah I remember one of the engineers Barry Goldberg was a staff engineer Uh, I came in he goes dude yesterday we spent the entire day Renting symbols from everywhere just to get the right swell for the beginning of the song. Just one full day of getting the right symbol swell. For the start of a song. For the start of a song. It was it was crazy. But, you know, I definitely, during the 90s, because of ADAT, DA, 88, what have you, you know, labels started realizing that you could make records cheaper. And then... You know, uh, it was it was kind of a weird time because that was also at the end of the '90s. You had record companies being bought up by, you know, people that didn't really make music. Seagrams, you know, came in and bought A and M. I think they bought A and M, and then it was it was it was a tough decade. Let's just put it that way, uh, especially there at the end, you know. And then um, Pro Tools. Um, started coming into view towards the... I remember it was probably about um, 97-ish, I want to say, that when I started messing around with Pro Tools. And at that time, when I started, they only had... The Pro Tools only had four-track, uh, you know, version. A four-track uh, version four, of Pro Tools? Four-track. That was... That was, that was that, I didn't know that. That was it at the beginning. You, you've got this... You got a little uh, sound card, and that was the very beginning of it. And then as the 90s went on, and then you had the the interfaces, the 8-track interfaces that you could, you know, put multiples together and, you know, get 24 tracks or whatever it was. I uh, just remember those damn full things. So when you go into a situation like you're about to go in on this, this Eagles reunion, what are you thinking in your head? Are you terrified? Are you excited? Um, well, uh, both. First off, when I got into this industry, I got into it, you know, eyes wide open. My, my, how many people go to Hollywood and make it, you know? So my hope was that I could, and I consider, especially at that point, music was very dear to me. And music, as far as I was concerned, was almost history. Um, So I was going to be happy. I never thought I was going to be able to work on some of the stuff that I did. Um, I was going to be happy if I could find a job and just see recorded history go down. That That was it. I mean, that was my... My hope, my dream, never thought I'd be able to do some of the stuff that I was able to do. 
you go into uh, a session, especially at the beginning of whatever career. I mean, you've heard the horror stories of people getting fired for... Breathing wrong? Breathing Yeah, yeah exactly. Get the lunch order wrong. So, yeah, yeah. So you're paranoid of everything, um, but you're excited. I mean, oh, my God, the, the, the Eagles. I mean, that was huge. Um, oh, we got a great story about that, too. We all could not talk about the Eagles recording there. And I actually got my gig at the studio because you got enough time for a little bit of story? Absolutely. Okay, cool. So um, I got out of school, and now I'm a husband and a father. My son, and the reason why I wanted to, to do this, I was working on cars for a living. I actually made a pretty decent living. But I hated it. I hate. I like working on my own car. I used to buy cars at dealerships and hop them up and sell them. Um, and I enjoyed the shit out of that. And um, but I didn't like working on other people's cars. It was just terrible, absolutely terrible. Especially in Phoenix, you know, working at a, in in uh, under a hood at 210 degrees and 120 degree heat. What a pain, right? So my son was just born, and I, I told my wife, I go, if I don't do something now, I'm, it's never going to happen. And I, I, I just feel like I'm turning into my dad. That was the motivation to, uh, to go, right? So I went to school, and uh, I did pretty decently at the school. Um, Brian uh, actually had me teach a couple of classes uh, you know, there were times where he could not, you know, he had a session or something, so he couldn't be there to teach. So I actually did teach a couple of classes before even graduating from the school. I did decently. I'm not going to say it. I was uh, the top student. There was another student that, son of a bitch, always got the good grade, you know, the, the, the top score of the class. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't too far behind, but still, it was just like, yes. so anyway. We get out of school. Now, I can't quit my job and just go, hey, I'm going to go do this, right? Um, you know, I got to try and... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't... We I, relate. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't want to, you know, burn my bridges. So, you know, I put in my notice. I do my two weeks and stuff like that, and I go on, out and look for, for a gig. So um, when I start to look for a gig, I'm starting to realize pretty quickly that maybe I waited a little too long because uh, I go to a couple of studios and I notice that there are a couple of students that I went to school that, that are already working there and you know they didn't have any, any more positions. I'm going, oh, dear Lord, why me? Uh, I waited. I missed my boat. And so I went to the village. Um, do you know do you know the Studio Village Recorder? Just an incredible place. Um, has an incredible history. It was a Masonic temple uh, built oh, in the wow. early 1900s. In the 1960s, a guy named Jordy Hormel, who is the heir to the Hormel Foods family, he used to call it the studio that Spam built because it was. And he bought the place and uh, turned it into a recording studio. So Steely Dan did 
a lot of records there. Fleetwood Mac, The Stones, Eric Clapton. If you take a look at Eric Clapton's first record, um, he's in this room. Uh, there's a roll of carpeting in the in the background, what have you. That's Studio A when it was being built. Oh at, wow! At the okay, village. the cover of the record. Yeah, at the village. Yeah. Uh, you know, just some incredible records have been done there. So I went in and I gave the resume to the lady that was behind the front counter. Very 70s at that point. It was, you know, the front counter was all this glass with with chrome around it, and everything was black velvet, and yeah, you yeah. know, at the, at the time. So it happens to be the studio manager, and she said, uh, "You know what? If you can have a seat, I'll I'll uh, I'd be glad to, to talk with you." And I said, "Fine." Yeah, sat down, and was there maybe 10 minutes, and coming walking down the hall was the top cat in our school. The, I can't remember his... Todd. Todd. can't remember his last name. I'll never remember his last name, but his first name was Todd. I remember that. So he walks down the hall. I'm going, oh, again? you got to be kidding me. I'm dying here. All right? And um, uh, we talk for a little while, and he's telling me about a couple of things he's seen. I'm going, great, great. Maybe I can get to the other the next studio here pretty soon. And... Um, at one point, he, he stops and goes, you know what? Let me see what's going on with the studio manager. Uh, you know, what's taking so long? I said, you know what? I'm, I'm not in a rush. You know, she said she'd get to me. She's got somebody on the phone or whatever it was. But I couldn't talk him out of it. He went in there anyway. Came back. She told him to give me a tour of the studio. I said, okay. So we went into just about every room of the studio. I think there was one room where a band was doing something, so we couldn't go in there, but uh, we went everywhere else. And we went into Studio D. Now, Studio D, they call the the Fleetwood Mac room because they um, spent a year doing Tusk in that room. Uh, It was kind of built and modified for that. And that's where the Eagles were. And I'm looking at... Don Henley's drum set and there's cases with Joe Walsh's name on and I'm going holy crap because they hadn't been together since the 70s and at this point was there even any rumors that you had heard about of them getting back together nobody knew this was like probably one of the best kept secrets in in LA nobody knew nobody knew and that's the way they wanted it they want. There's a actually a great documentary. You ever seen um, uh, the history of the Eagles? Oh yeah. Okay. It is great. Have you seen it, Isaac? I haven't seen it. Yet. Oh, oh dude, watch dude. it. Yeah, you got to see it. So they wanted to keep everything quiet because they've got a bar they have to hit. I mean, if you look at the top fifty records, uh, I don't know if it's still, but you still, they're, they're, you know, in the top three, Eagles Greatest Hits Volume One, mm-hmm. um, and then. A little bit down, you're going to see Hotel California, and not after that, Eagles Greatest Hits Volume Two. It's yeah. uh, you know, so they hit that, and then the other thing is they, you know, Joe had alcohol issues. Yeah, know? he was trying so, to get sober around yeah, that time. We were all told that no matter what, there was to be no alcohol in the hallways, and any band that was there. Um, we were not to bring, uh, if they wanted alcohol, we had to make sure it was covered and that we brought it into their room. They could have it in their room, 
but not in the hallways, and they wanted to keep everything just so. But they didn't want anybody to know they were coming together unless they felt good about what they were going to put out. <laughs> so I come back, and uh, I was ready for my interview. You know, I walked back in, and we're talking, and the, the studio manager, Kathy, uh, I, I understand she's somewhere in the Nashville area now. So we're talking. We're having a, a good time. And there's a point at which... You know, we're talking about some music and what have you. And then she starts telling me stories about the bands that, that have been there. And it, it was a really good conversation. And she goes, um, I'll never forget it. She goes, what do you think of your, your friend, Todd? And I, I thought that was the weirdest question. It's like, is this like some weird kind of a test? It was the first thing that went to my mind. I'm going, um, he's a nice guy. I really don't know him. I mean, we didn't, we didn't necessarily hang out. Yeah. You know, there was like two or three of us that hung out, if you will, uh, at all. Just and we, come lunchtime, we'd go and eat and what have you. And uh, he just wasn't there, you know. And then I'm a husband, I'm a father, so... You got other stuff going I on. I got other stuff. I'm not, I'm not hanging out after the, you know, after the classes. I mean, every once in a very blue moon, there was this bar right next to the, to the school, and uh, you know, we'd go play pool and have a couple of beers, but he was never there. So, uh, I, I basically said, you know, I, he seems to be okay. I don't really know him all that well. She goes, okay. So, it won't bother you much to know that in order to hire you I've got to fire him I went uh, well no but um, I was like would you mind telling me why because I don't want to make the same mistake and she goes okay well first off I don't think that's going to happen even by the nature of your question because I guess you know he might have been book smart, but he wasn't necessarily street smart. Quite often he came off arrogant and just wasn't gelling with the clients and the clientele. But it turns out this big mistake was taking me in and showing me the eagle stuff. We were told nobody is to know. And there was only one reason he took me in there, and that was for his own ego. And uh, he did something he absolutely, positively was not supposed to do. Well, by doing that, it let you in on the secret. So the only lateral move at that point was to uh, give you a job. Is that is that kind of what the situation was? I don't think so. I mean, yeah. it, it was just, you know... Uh, the other thing that she told me is that she really didn't hire him. Uh, there was a point at which the Eagles, they were all still doing solo gigs when they were doing the, the reunion record. So they would come in and work for a couple weeks and then go away and, and, and come in. Kind of work on it sporadically. Yeah. And then there was one week where she took, uh, a couple weeks where she took a vacation or something because they weren't going to be there. And then all of a sudden, one of them said, you know what, I want to work on this a little bit. They came back and they were understanding staff so they hired I guess the uh, somebody else had hired him and she really didn't so uh, he wasn't yeah. he wasn't exactly um, hired by the, the right person anyway so he was gone I came in and the rest is history 
So that, that's kind of a situation where it's like, at the time, are you going home and like t- telling your wife, being like, you'll never believe what happened today. I went into this studio with the guy that was in my class and he got fired because he showed me that the Eagles were recording there. Were you, were you just flipping out as all of this was going on? Did it feel unreal yeah. to you? And yeah, I was numb. You know, what? by the time the day was done, I was just like... I first off, I can't believe I'm working here at this studio, you know, just because of what had been done there before. But I couldn't believe what I had saw that day, you know, that the Eagles were actually recording there. And I was blown away. I just I was numb at the point. Well, you came up to in a different era from today. I feel like today there's a lot of emphasis being put on being kinder and gentler and everything when you're teaching what was it like when you were learning were they were they brutal with you uh yeah um uh it wasn't too bad and you know it, it is the reality that this is not the easiest industry to be in you are going to get hazed uh, it's a lot less now than when i was into it I definitely got my my share of hazing uh, from various people. But, you know, in some ways it's made me a a better engineer, a better person to deal with, with, you know, harder to deal with clients, which, you know, happens quite often. Yeah. Um, Artists are very particular. Artists are very particular. And you just got to try and... make an atmosphere that they feel like they want to be creative, no, no matter how hard or uh, difficult an artist uh, you know, can be. You know, and in reality, it's not that bad. I mean, there's only a couple of people, there's like a handful of people that if I never work with them again, I'm okay with that. Well, you also have the experience of knowing what real hard work is like when you were a, a mechanic working yeah. in the, the heat, in yeah. the, the Phoenix desert, you know? Um, so when you go to something like doing music and you're in a situation where you walk into the studio and then there's all the gear for the Eagles, you, as far as perspective goes, you have the perspective of what it's like to work hard. Right. Yeah. And I had a pretty damn good, um, work ethic. You know, I, I've been on my own since I was 16. So I, we got out of the house at a young age, and so I had to, you know, I had to sink or swim. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I developed a really good work ethic. Developed street smarts along the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the fact of the matter is, is that I was at the studio all the time. My wife, thank God for her, she really, when I got into the studio, she became a single mother. She really did, and God bless her. I missed so much of everything, and but that's unfortunately. I mean, that's that's kind of part of it, especially at that time. Now here in Nashville, it's a little bit different, uh, especially now. Um, you know, there's a little bit more family, I think, here than in Los Angeles. Yeah. You know, I can't tell you how many times my wife would call and say, "When time are you coming home?" And I would have the same reply. Honey, when the client says, I'm done, it's... Which can really be 
Anytime. It's tough. Um, and, uh, you know, the, uh, the one thing you never do is tell your wife, I think the session's going to end early. It's death. You, it will never end early, you tell them that. Um, yeah, it's, you know, you just, it, that's the way it is. You know, I mean, there would be days where I wouldn't come home. We were doing a, a, a live concert video, doing a mix for a concert video, and um, the producer on this thing took a, a, a quick, well, it was supposed to be a quick side job, and the quick side job made us three days late in mixing this damn video, but we had no choice. Uh, we had to get it done, so we stayed up for three days and three nights. Brutal, absolutely brutal to try and get it done on time. There was there was no ifs, ands, or buts. It had to be done on time. And, uh, yeah, she didn't see hide or hair of me during that time. It's, uh, I don't know if I could do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not as young as I used to be. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, was, it was pretty brutal. What was your involvement with Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness? Like, when did you come in on that? So... It had all been recorded. Um, it was recorded in Chicago, and uh, Billy came to the the village. And I don't know how the village got in there. How do you go from Chicago to Los Angeles? But for whatever reason, they came to the village. It was uh, Billy Corgan, Flood, and Alan Mulder. So I was there basically as a staff engineer, and then um, I helped them set up the mix in Studio B, uh, so the village actually had, at that time, it had four rooms. Well, five rooms. So you had um, A, B, C, D, E, and F. Um, actually, not E. I don't know what happened to E. I think that turned into a video room that was abandoned. Studio C, though, was not something that you could rent out. Robbie Robertson, I don't, are you familiar with Robbie Robertson? He had a permanent room in C. That was his, he did all kinds of stuff in there. But, um, uh, and at one point, they had three rooms going. Uh, well, actually, at one point, they had all four studios going. But uh, I helped set up the mix in Studio B. And then Billy, turns out Billy got sick halfway through tracking. He uh, didn't hardly have any of the vocals done. So while they were mixing in Studio B, I was over in Studio A recording some of the vocals. So that, I only did that for a couple of days. And then I actually had some other commitments. So Barry Goldberg and Tom Winslow, I think, were the two engineers, the main engineers that, that helped out a lot on Melancholy. And I really, really dug kind of watching how Flood and Mulder did what they did. It's, you listen to that record even today, and it sounds... Flipping amazing. Well, it has so much influence on all of the bands that kind of came in the eras after it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I know that the Killers, I think, I don't know if they worked with Flood or Alan Mulder, both of them on Samstown, but the reason why they worked, they chose them, was because of Melancholy. Sure. You know, so it's like, it's that next class of rock stars, yeah. where it's the generation after them, a generation or two after them. And it's like you you look at these discographies of all these great producers and you just kind of see 
through time, it's like, oh, they wanted to work with them because they were a big fan of this record. That that was the record they were listening to growing sure, up. Sure, sure. What was their process like? What impressed you about them? Well, let's get one thing uh, straight. Uh, them. There was no them. After the recording, when they came to the village, it was only Billy. Really? Yeah. The rest of the band did not show up until the last day of the mixes. Um, well, that's what kind of Smashing Pumpkins was famous for, was that it was pretty much just Billy most of the time. And yeah. That he would re-record things without them, record their he parts. He didn't, though. I mean, he did a couple of small things. They were um, mainly really just worried about the mix and the vocals. I want to say that they originally had booked a month and a half to mix the record. I think they ended up almost three months. Really? Yeah, wow. because they, I mean, it was... It's it, a double record. It's a double record, but it was just one of those things where... And you know what? He was, he had to have been under ridiculous pressure. I mean, because I remember vividly the the, the record co- you know, the, some record company people came in, and they were already touting it as the, you know the Smashing Pumpkins physical graffiti. Yeah, and of course he had to have been under a huge amount of pressure. Well, there was huge singles from that record when it came out too. Yeah, like multiple huge singles. Yeah, it ended up being an amazing, an amazing record, but. It, it just took him. It took them a lot longer than they ever anticipated to to get it done. But they, I know, I know he probably did some guitar work there, but uh, and obviously he had to do all the vocals and the mixes. But uh, it I, was putting I, the finishing touches. It was on. putting the finishing touches. So the ba- the rest of the band didn't come until the last couple of days or something to hear the mixes. So, so the Quincy Jones audiobook that you won a Grammy for. What was that like? That was pretty damn incredible. I, I, you know, that was one of those things where it was just kind of a side thing that um, I got into, uh, you know, recording audiobooks and in between records, you know, quite often you have to kind of fill your time up with, yeah. with stuff. So uh, being a staff guy at the... Um, uh, at the village, they had Studio F, which was a really dead and closed off room. And they would just throw me these audiobook things, which, um, you know, pretty easy. One mic, one mic pre, one compressor, it's not a big deal. And then later on, I just, as, as you're developing relationships, I had a, one of the audiobook producers kept on asking for me and asking for me. And eventually she built her own room. Um, which is where we we did that one, and uh, she got this one, and she wanted she wanted me to work on it, and I said great. Had no idea what it was at first. Till uh, uh, it got there, she was she was like, I didn't want to broadcast this, but we're, we're going to be doing this thing with Quincy, and we're going to bring in family, we're going to bring in musicians and stuff like that. And uh, so we recorded all of it, and it's you know it was just amazing listening to him talk about his life and uh, you know his first paid gig as a horn player was Billy Holiday you know that was just absolutely ridiculous 
um, listening to that. It was awesome. Funny thing, though, we had to, you know, on one of the, it was either the first or second session he came in to, to do some recording, and he had on this this shirt, I think he had to some pictures taken or something, and it was all freshly pressed and heavily starched, and you heard him move every single little move and we had to, we had to stop the session stop the session and send out a runner and go get him a hoodie uh, or I, I think we got him a hoodie because he was a little bit cold too and uh, had to have him go into the to the bathroom and change his shirt because it was making too damn much noise for uh, what was happening uh, that's funny yeah I feel like a, mo- a moment like that when you're hearing one of the most legendary producers from, you know, the history of recorded music, hear him talk about his own history, it would feel kind of surreal because I imagine the book wasn't even out yet at this point. So you're Mm -hmm. kind of hearing firsthand. It's like he's telling you all of these stories while you're sitting there recording them. Yeah, it's it it was it was incredible. So, uh, I mean, again, that was just one of those things that dropped into my lap it was just it was unreal so when did you end up moving to nashville about four years ago um actually we we had tried to come in uh six years ago i had a friend of mine kevin becca who was the director of education at the school that i taught at he moved out here and um had developed the audio program for blackbird studios and I came out here on vacation shortly after he did, and he allowed me to stay at his house. And Nashville just blew me away, just absolutely blew me away. I fell in love with it. Uh, my wife and I both looked at each other and said, okay, we're, we're done where we're at. You know, we, we had, um, my son was out of high school, and there was nothing keeping us. So we said, you know what? Let's 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 do this. So we moved here. We rented a house, and I put together like a makeshift studio in that rental. But really, with a makeshift studio and what have you, you can't really do anything. So we had a, a house built. You know, we we got all the wiring in it, and I, I just started to do a little bit. And I'm, I'm going, okay, we I need to make some more connections and do this, and then COVID. What? Of course. I'm just, I, 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 I was like, you've got to be kidding me. We all took it personally. Yeah. <laughs> Some things are getting going. Right? Yeah, it's, it's, for it, sure. It was just like unbelievable. Uh, you know, everything to kind of took a backseat. And, and then um, my wife, because of COVID, started working from home and permanently. And I know this is going to be a big shock to you guys. But music and home mortgages do not coexist very well. And that's what my wife does is home mortgages. Oh, really? Yeah. So, like, I'd be trying to record drums, and she's trying to talk to a client. And, you know, come on, drums are flipping loud, right? Yeah. So it wasn't working. So we ended up having to build the studio that I have now, which is wonderful. I mean, it's the uh, same builder. Um, so he kind of knew what I needed. He ran all of the wiring, all the power. 
in every room, I have at least two 20-amp, separate 20-amp drops that go straight to the fuse box. Um, he ran all my cabling for the, the, the multi-track wiring. He was blown away by how much Cat6 I had run everywhere because I've got Cat6 for uh, headphone boxes and for video feeds, for Internet, for, you know, just about everything. Um, Are you using it for mic input, too? No. Okay. No, I don't use it for mic input. Um, all that's analog. But, like, for instance, all the video feeds. So instead of glass, I've got video cameras and TVs everywhere. And You're set up for to be able to do live streams and stuff like that. There, right? I am. Yeah. yeah I, so it's got to go HDMI conversion to Cat Six and then convert back. Um, I bought the the Black Magic switcher, which allows me to do yeah video streams online, but it also allows me to record every video stream separately, so you could edit it later. I recently bought the uh, JBL Intonado, which is in my. Uh, the mainframe is in the machine room. So I get a separate machine room where everything that uh, has that generates heat, makes noise, it's all in there. But I control the Intonado, which is a monitor controller that does everything. I mean, it's tw I think it's 24 speakers it can control. So eventually I'm putting Dolby Atmos. I will be mixing Dolby Atmos in that room. Yeah, it's all wired for it. Uh, I set it up for it. Good for uh, you for thinking ahead. Yeah, uh, but the control, the actual box, is sitting on my my console, and it's all Cat Six going to the, you know. So I needed Cat Six everywhere, and the, the the builder was like, "I can't believe how much you're putting in." You know, it's just ridiculous. And in reality, I probably could have put in more. <laughs> but um, it's it's turned out amazing. I mean, you've been to the place. Yeah, it's a beautiful studio. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, I can pretty much do anything I, I want. I mean, I've got the, the main tracking room. You know, live rooms, good for drums. I also like to put guitar amps in there and and uh, mic the room. It's got some, we get some really good ambience there. And then I've got the the other sound booth, which is really dead and closed off. Yeah. So acoustic guitars, vocals, great in there. And then I've got an amp closet where I can throw in a 4x12, and I've got all kinds of tie lines. So, you know, like when we're doing overdubs, I can... You know, have the guitar amp in there and be adjusting it, and have the speaker someplace else. So it's uh, I, I love it, and I use the Behringer um, mixers for headphones, so everybody can do their own headphone mix, uh, and they work quite well. Um, I wish they had a little bit more headroom, but I've also got some uh, powered headphones, so if a, a drummer needs a little bit more oomph, they can take care of that. So. You're using a, a Trident Series uh, 24, right? Yes. Yeah. How's that different from the 80 Series? It was not as complex as the 80 Series. Uh, the big difference between them is in the mic pre. The EQs are similar, but the mic pre is, is definitely different. The, the mic pre on mine... Uh, uses two transistors going into an op amp where the 80 series actually just used op amps. Uh, now, my Trident 24 
is heavily modified. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Yeah. So I've pulled all the op amps out and updated them. By doing that, I was also able to pull a lot of the capacitors out of the signal path. Oh, so it's much cleaner. Yeah. So the the op amps that were built back in the you know the seventies, the eighties, and what have you, um, had some DC offset where you had to filter that DC out, and that's what the extra capacitors were there for to kill that extra DC before it went into the next stage. Because if you if you have a waveform and you add DC into that waveform, you are now going to push that waveform either above your center line or below your center line. Either way, now the headroom of the rest of the signal path is compromised. So uh, you're going to clip part of the the waveform off. But with newer op amps, uh, you don't have that DC offset anymore, so you don't need to have as many capacitors in the signal path. Are you are you mixing um, on the console too, or are you just kind of using no. it as Once it's in the box, it stays in the box. Okay. I mean, uh, there will be times where I'll run some signal through some outboard gear. It doesn't happen often. Um, and then there, there'll be times where I reamp some stuff. But once it's in the box, I try to get the character going in. And you have direct outs on every channel, you're not busing? Direct outs, no buses. Yeah. Um, the other thing I did is I did put Neve-style input transformers on half of the console. I've almost got enough to do the whole console. Um, I do like the way transformers sound, their coloration. It just kind of thickens up the sound, and I, I like the way it does. Is that like the, the Carnell transformers? Yeah. Yeah. At some point or another, I'm going to try and do the rest of the console. That is, unless I just get tired of the console and I decide to buy a whole new one. <laughs> How long have you had it? How long have you been using it? I've been using it for about six years now. I bought it just before we came out here the first time. Uh, I had a tech friend of mine where, um, and I had used the console at the village. The village had an exact one like this one in Studio F. And um, I love the way it sounded. It wasn't the ADB, which is a great sounding console, but this, this also had a great character to it. So uh, a tech friend of mine had this one in his garage for years. And um, it looked like it had been in a garage for years. So I pulled it all down. I took every channel strip out, cleaned everything up. Like I said, updated the op amps. And um, it sounds great. Uh, I mean, if you take a look at it too, man, I just, I took a lot of time with it. I, I even took all the wood pieces off and sanded them and stained them red. And it just, it looks great. From the pictures I saw, I'd love to see your studio at some point. The pictures I saw, it's a beautiful console. Yeah, come by. It sounds great. I mean, all the stuff that I've recorded on it so far just has come out incredible. You know, the Bohemian Funk stuff, and I've got the reveal in there right now, and we've done some really good stuff. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a great sounding console. Isaac, to wrap up, you kind of had some specific questions, right, that you wanted to uh, to ask <laughs> yeah, I was I was just kind of I was kind of asking it right now. Yeah, I wanted to know uh, 
what is Seal's vocal chain? Um, I don't know. Um, so I saw you mix that record, right? We, um, we did not mix uh, uh, the entire record. We did a song over at uh, Royal Tone Studios. Everything that I listened to from you was on a SoundCloud playlist that I saw that you put up. Mm-hmm. They had some, some really cool samples. Yeah. Um, some really interesting yeah. songs there. But, um, that, was, that was a record that um, is kind of different from a lot of his records. It was kind of a darker record. That song was really funky. Yeah. Sonically, that was... Yeah. Um, Trevor Horn uh, was the producer on that record who did Yes's, you know, big hit, uh, Owner of a Lonely Heart and and what have you. Um, I know, actually, that he got a call while we were doing that and uh, Yes wanted him to come back and and do another record with him. I don't think he ever did it, but... uh, um, yeah, that was that was kind of cool. Yeah, the, the Toto, the Toto album sounded really good too. I love that was incredible. Um, those guys are so badass. Oh, they're the best. Yeah, yeah. Um, those guys were all studio cats, and you could find their names on anything. <laughs> I mean, if you take a look at Michael Jackson's Thriller, it's kind of Toto with Michael Jackson singing on top of it. Those guys just blew me away. Um, You know, we would come in and they would do like two, three takes and we had it. It was just, you know, it was just kind of finding the the feel for a song and, and Blue Cuther is hilarious. He can be uh, an interesting cat, but he's he's just he's funny. Mike Picaro, um, who passed away a few years ago, was one of the sweetest guys I'd I'd ever I'd ever met. And um, you know that was just one session where I just stood there and and just was like, holy crap. I bet we need a band in a room like that. It's just just to listen yeah. to how it's done. Yeah, it is. It is, and it's it's uh, it's one of those things where you just kind of like sometimes you just kind of pinch yourself. Is like, really? Am I am I doing this? Is this is this really happening in front of me? Yeah, uh, there was one day where Eddie Van Halen came down to the the studio and was listening to something that we had done, and I'm just sitting there going, "You." got to be flipping kidding me it's just you know I'm sitting there and there's Eddie and Steve and they're just uh, you know it was, it was it was pretty cool it was pretty cool, That's so cool. tell you what the, the one other thing about that Toto record though the one yeah. thing one thing I'm I'm proud of we actually did get nominated for best engineered record oh really that's awesome and we didn't win I mean, that's a high honor just to get for Best Engineer Record. Best Engineer Record. We got nominated that year. Boy, it would have been nice to have that one. I'm looking for that next Grammy. It's out there waiting. Yeah, it's out there waiting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking for that next one. The, 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 the Kula um, Shakar, is that how you say it? That song? Kula Shaker. Kula Shaker. That song was really cool. That was trippy, wasn't it? That's trippy, yeah. I, Did, wanted to get the rest, I kind of looked at their bio while I was listening to it. I wanted the rest of their 
Like that. Yeah, it's all kind of this this thing, yeah. And then the Robbie, yeah, how about the Robbie Robertson one? Did you check that out? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, the fact that he worked with Robbie Robertson, so you said he had a studio there at the building? Yeah, it's studio, it's, uh, studio C. It was a small room. Is, is that where you had the Neve console? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's two Neves. Well, there was two Neves at, at the studio. Studio A had an SSL. It was an E-series. Uh, yeah, yeah, but the SSL just actually just has this sound and it really works great for rap and pop and and stuff like that. And uh, we had, um, I mean, we did doggy style at the at the village. Yeah, take a look. Um, classic, uh, classic album. Yeah, so I I did some some of the first sessions I ever did was was rap stuff. So I worked with like Daz and Corrupt and. I got to to do uh, one or two sessions with Snoop, but that damn SSL crashed. The automation on that damn thing would crash once a damn session. Would they have the eight-inch floppies? We had the Bernoullis. Oh. <laughs> yeah, which, do you even know what a Bernoulli is? I do know what a Bernoulli is. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, I, I, we did some stuff on SSL, whole, whole computer and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah just, guys still use them. Yeah. I had a, a friend of mine who was really my mentor, Charlie Bracco, who unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. Well, I, I keep on saying this. I, there's a pattern here. I had a, Charlie Bracco who was a wonderful guy. He was at the village, and uh, he did some great sessions there, and he kind of really taught me how to uh, how to do things. He showed me the uh, the automation on the, the SSL and, and stuff like that, but those old Bernoullis, unbelievable. Uh, but they got rid of that, and they put a beautiful Neve uh, 80-48, um, which is, you know, one off from the eighty twenty eight like you've seen in Sound City and stuff like that. So instead of the 1073s, they had the 1081 modules, oh, okay. which yeah. I love that, which had the extra band yeah, of EQ yeah. and... and um, my God, that thing sounded great. So there was a smaller, there was a smaller Neve in Studio C, which he worked in all the time, and then the the larger one, Studio A. I saw it just came up for sale. That's that's why I, I even knew about that. The one in Robbie's yeah. suite. Yeah, oh. I saw it a month or two ago. It was like it was a video on YouTube, and he's going through the whole thing, how many records he made on it. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. uh, auctioning it off or selling it or something, but. Wow. Yeah, wouldn't you love to have that? Yeah. They had, the mojo. Yeah, no doubt. He did a lot of there. Um, did you get to know him? I got, no. Um, I, I don't want to say that. I mean, we talked. It was cordial. We did a few sessions together. Um, but I can't say I got, I got to know him, you know. Uh, nice gentleman, very mild-mannered. I never saw him lose control uh, ever, and his, the, the you know the stuff that we did for the for his record, I just uh, that stuff just blew my mind. It sounded so flipping good, and the, you know the the whole mixture of dance and American Indian music and. Uh, industrial. I mean, I, I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, it's it's a crazy sound. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
you know, we did uh, we did that, and then we also did the um, work for the Phenomenon soundtrack, the John Travolta movie. That uh, was a big soundtrack. That's the uh, there was yeah. um, that Eric Clapton song on that soundtrack, right? Uh, if I can change the world, was that Eric Clapton? I can't remember if that's on there or not. That's Eric Clapton, yeah. The song that I worked on mainly was uh, the Peter Gabriel song, I Got the Touch. So he, he basically, Peter sent us the actual multi-tracks, and we peeled off basically his vocal and I think a guitar, and we replaced everything because it was very 80s-sounding, and this was a 90s movie. So we had uh, J.R. Robinson come in and play drums on it, and then Robbie did most of the guitars. And I can't remember who did the bass on it. But, you know, trying to update the sound, it was a lot drier, and uh, the only thing I think that was ended up late, left on the original track was just actually Peter's vocal. I, I guess I have one more question. Okay. How good did it feel to quit your job? When you go full-time at the studio? For when? <laughs> you mean talking back when I first... Yeah, when, when you were a mechanic were and you quit mechanic, that to go... I'll be honest with you, I'm, you know, again, I was very realistic in... I was more scared than anything else, to be honest with you, because I was going down a road that um, I, I just didn't know what was going to happen, man. So it kind of felt good to do it, but it also kind of was just this scary thing. You know, I have a wife and I have a kid. And that's the leap of faith. That's right the there. leap of faith, and uh, thank God for my wife, you know. I mean, without her, I couldn't have done hardly any of this, you know. Isaac, where can people find you at? They can find me at at the Weird Sisters on Instagram. You can find the Weird Sisters on Spotify. The WeirdSistersBand.com is the most direct place to find all of our mayhem. And no nobody needs to find me, just find my band. <laughs> Jeff, where can people find you at? Oh, that's underneath the table at your local bar. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, uh, you can find me at stormbringersound.com. Um, um, you know, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, so on and so forth. Awesome. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on today. Mm, no problem. <laughs>